Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and Doc NYC, and coming up in March, the Miami Film Festival. This episode is the start of season three. My guests are Laura Poitras and journalist Henrik Moltke. Poitras first came to attention with her 2006 film, My Country, My Country, set in Baghdad, and her follow-up called The Oath, filmed in Yemen and Guantanamo Bay. But she rose to even greater prominence in summer 2013 when she released this video on The Guardian website. Uh, my name is Ed Snowden. I'm uh, 29 years old. I work for Booz Allen Hamilton as an infrastructure analyst for NSA uh, in Hawaii. Poitras and Glenn Greenwald broke the Snowden story and have been continuously reporting about NSA surveillance ever since. Poitras directed the Oscar-winning documentary Citizen Four, and last year she used government documents for an art installation called Astro Noise at the Whitney Museum. She joined with Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill to co-found the Intercept website for independent journalism. But she stepped away last year to spend more time on the website Field of Vision for short works of documentary journalism. Now she's collaborated with Moltke on a new short for Field of Vision called Project X. What is Project X? If you've ever wandered in downtown Manhattan, you may have noticed a windowless skyscraper in the brutalist architectural style at 33 Thomas Street. It's not a widely known address. I forget that Manhattan even has a Thomas Street and my name is Thomas. But the building does have a cult following, including a Wikipedia page. The film Project X complements an article written by Moltke and Ryan Gallagher for The Intercept titled Titan Point, the NSA's spy hub in New York hidden in plain sight. The article draws upon the Snowden archives to detail the NSA's relationship with AT&T that occupies 33 Thomas Street. The film is a mood piece capturing the landscapes on a nighttime drive that an NSA official might make from Maryland to Manhattan. In a voiceover, the actor Rami Malek reads from an NSA handbook. The purpose of this handbook is to provide proper procedures and guidelines when traveling on official business in support of the program. The program has vehicles available for visiting sites that require U.S. government anonymity. Keys are available from Redacted, Redacted, on the second floor of the Redacted, building and room Redacted, and in the file cabinet outside the program director's office. It's a haunting piece of filmmaking that's backed up by months of investigative reporting. In late November, a few weeks after Donald Trump's election, I met with Poitras and Moltke to discuss Project X. We sat down at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Program. I started by asking how they met. Okay, so um, Henrik reached out to me. I was living in Berlin, and um, I'd recently come back from Hong Kong where I'd met Edward Snowden and was reporting on the documents with Der Spiegel, and we wanted to expand the reporting. And Henrik had um, gone down to Rio and met with Glenn, and Glenn highly recommended that they meet. And so you, you had to work I down. actually tried to contact yeah. you before we, we 
got in contact through Glenn, but you were very busy, understandably, at the yeah, time. Yeah, I wasn't in a very trusting mood, so people, no. random strangers reaching out. I can only out. imagine. <laughs> uh, and so, Henrik, what was your background? I am a journalist, and I had been working for about a year before then on a documentary, a radio documentary, about the physicality of the internet. And I'd actually been pursuing a story which led us to this one much later about this mythical room 641A in San Francisco. And I'd gone out to cable stations a couple of months earlier on the West Coast. And so I was already tuned into all this. And when when I saw uh, the Snowden video, the first one on on Facebook through a friend, I, I just felt I had to somehow get in touch with Laura because I was I felt like many people I'm sure did that I was already part of the story and and so it took a couple of months but eventually I um, I met with Laura and then what has been the nature of the work you've been doing together well so after that I sort of switched a bit modes from documentary to more traditional investigative journalism because that's what I felt the the, the documents demanded uh, especially at the time because we were still reporting news and I mean, this is this is for Laura to respond to, but I felt my role also was more helpful in in trying to get the reporting out there, while um, you know Laura had both that and she had a documentary film she was working on, and so there was a lot of of stuff going on, and and so I, I tried to to just focus on the documents. Yeah, I think for both of us, the pri- priority in that first phase was the print reporting and the news. And so we did a story that was very big in, in Europe about how partners um, such as Denmark are working with the NSA. So we, we were doing the sort of the hard news stuff. But I think for both of us, our perspectives and the way that we approach um, the work that we do is as much kind of narrative driven or storytelling driven combined with you know, journalistic principles. And so after that initial wave, I um, finished Citizen Four and then um, relocated back to New York and was working on an exhibition for the Whitney, which pulled from the also from the Snowden material, but in a different kind of a way, not more trying to capture the kind of um, what you can draw from the the material visually, not just news. And uh, and I asked Henrik to come with me to New York and help assist with the kind of research end of it because we knew that there would be a need for sort of heavy heavy research part of it and 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 as part of the exhibition so he came to work on the Whitney show and then also we had um, uh, agreed to collaborate with ProPublica and the New York Times on a story about the relationship between AT&T and, and NSA. This was one of those very complicated stories that you have to be very stubborn to sort of nail because it was not in the documents. It was not easily provable that I think everybody who had reported on the documents had a clear feeling that AT&T was a partner. But to get from there to actually being able to prove it in a, in a sort of way that is not easy to shoot down was took some time. And so I had spent some time digging deep in the archive and trying to, to connect. And, and my method, and, and I guess at the time, but still is to sort of look for the physical, the, the physical traces. And, and for that story, um, I was able to find a document talking about the Tokushima earthquake and how one of the collection points in the NSA system had been down and the date came back up live was the same day when a specific cable that landed in a specific place, uh, Manchester in, in, in North California, um, sort of that was a one-to-one match. And then from there you start adding more. But but that was sort of very, very minutious and, and, and old-fashioned reporting. This is all data drawn from the Snowden archives. It's Snowden data combined with open sources. Mm-hmm. And and I think we both agree that the best stories that have been based on the, the Snowden archive are not just stories that explain the documents, but actually combine them with something from, from outside and... and um, it's very di- it's very easy to get drawn in and sort of report very um, 
in a very nearsighted way if you just look at the documents and they represent a certain reality but i am most comfortable when i'm able to compare that reality with with the other one we sort of walk around in every day. I mean, I think for those of us who have followed the Snowden revelations casually, we remember the big shock of information in summer of 2013 when Laura, you and Glenn Greenwald first reported on Edward Snowden. I remember one of those early stories was about Verizon and their relationship to uh, to the NSA. And and since then, I, I think there's a little, little bit of numbness to to parsing the stories. Like we we now live in this world where we fully understand the expansiveness of surveillance, and when news stories dribble out, it's it's hard for them to make as much impact as that original one did. So with with this story about the NSA and AT and T. Can you describe you know, what you think it's important for the public to understand about that? Well, if I can just look back to the Verizon story, this was one of those stories that was sort of right there to do immediately after um, they looked at the first documents. I wasn't part of the team at, at that time. And so I felt that that was important at the time and that was how it was reported. But that's not the kind of journalism I feel I do best. And so I came in at a time where, you know, the the, the easy hits were sort of already played and and you had to sort of look across and look for different stories and I'm more interested in the more structural um, the, the stories that are that, that are that, that's just what I'm better at and so we, we started looking at those and and there were a number of stories and I think when we did the reporting on AT&T Laura and I both had some documents that didn't make it into that story but that we both both felt very strongly about because they had a another appeal they they described um, the life and, and, and sort of the way you deal with the fact that you have these partners in the U.S. that are companies, how, how do you comport yourself? Yeah, and I would say a couple things. One, in terms of like the current status of how people respond to the reporting, I mean, post-Trump election, I've been inundated with emails from people, from filmmakers, activists, and everybody realizing that we need to be really careful if we're going to be engaged in activism right now because of now that we know the extent to which the surveillance um, uh, state is um, is gathering information. So I, I think that there is a sort of shifting awareness, and obviously sort of the use of encryption has increased enormously. So there is this, on one hand... The government hasn't, you know, reined in the powers of the of the NSA, but I think the public has become much more educated and knowing what they that they need to be careful if they're if they're doing things like activism or journalism. Um, but in terms of this story, so the NSA's partnerships with commercial companies are are essential to what they do, and so it's partnerships with. Or, companies like AT&T, even Verizon, where they are actually are able to gather the information, and this is one of their most protected um, partnerships. And so this is what this film is about and what also the, the reporting we've done in terms of AT&T because that's where the communications travel, not just U.S. Um, customers of AT&T, but the entire Internet backbone runs off of AT&T's um, infrastructure. So the new film that uh, you're putting up on Field Division is called Project X. What is Project X? So Project X is a, so it's a joint um, reporting project um, that involves a film, and then there's also a written component. And the written component was published with The Intercept. Henrik worked on that story with Ryan Gallagher, which sort of a deep dive into this really mysterious windowless skyscraper in downtown Manhattan that's been sort of the um, object of fascination for years in terms mm. of what goes on inside of it. Do you want to say more about the reporting? 
this is a building, it's a windowless uh, building. Anyone who spends time in lower Manhattan has probably passed by it and scratched their heads uh, for a second wondering what that is and before moving on. And I remember quite accurately the moment when I sort of realized, oh, wow, this is the place. I, I wasn't sure at the time, but I was looking at Google Maps. This is a, a very um, important tool when you're doing the kind of reporting that I do. And there were these documents describing how NSA employees, when they go to uh, partner facilities, where they go. And there was some information about going to the, the FBI field office in New York, which is the 23rd floor of the federal building um, downtown, which is right next to to um, 33 Thomas Street. And then there was some other information that was a bit more confusing. And so I, I went down there right when I arrived in New York uh, with Laura and and went for a walk and, and looked at the building and, and realized that there was a doorbell. It's very silly, um, but there was a doorbell you could ring. And that doorbell, the buzzer was described in the documents. That, of course, doesn't prove anything. But I felt at the time that I was already on onto a big story and got very excited. Yeah, one of our ideas at the Whitney that we didn't have time to do was to sort of take the exhibition outside of the museum and to sort of think of how we could sort of map surveillance architecture within sort of greater New York areas because there are certain key um, points there. And, and we tried to do that and it just, we didn't have time. And so when we finished the Whitney, then we thought like, okay, we still want to deal with this physicality and like the stuff that's happening, you know, in plain sight in, um, that's in our, our city. And so we started, Henrik had first thought about a walking tour, and then I wasn't that interested in a walking tour. And then we sort of decided, okay, let's try to do something that, that focuses on this building that uses some of the documents that um, we'd been fascinated by. And one of them uh, are these documents, these handbook for traveling undercover as a spy, which is just this great narrative um, uh document that tells you what to do, how you should dress, what you should tell your family, what you should do if you get in an accident. And it's just really fantastic and narrative. And so we thought that that would be a way to arrive at the building and then to sort of unpack the building. And we, I, I'd, this sort of, I've been inspired by um, the film Her, which is this great use of voice, uh, like voice as a character. That's someone who's part of the story, but you never see them. Here's another clip from Project X with Rami Malek, reading from an NSA handbook. The cover vehicles are leased by the FBI through a commercial cover company. Personnel are aware of the FBI link, but have no knowledge of NSA's involvement. No one should ever have contact with a leasing company. These vehicles are for official use only to include the transport of NSA equipment and personnel who actively support NSA FBI programs. These programs currently include Blarney, Fairview, Stormbrew, and Oakstar. It's funny, the, the language of that uh, guidebook almost reminds me of like 1950s educational films, the kind that Rick Prelinger uh, used to uh, dig up. When does that book date from? It's from 2013, I think. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's 2013. But it's very recent. It's, it's, not... it's at the time when Snowden uh, took the documents uh, around that time. 
and it's been updated several times. That's often the case with the documents. Um, so you have the same information often in several documents, but it's 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 uh, recent. And so what the document narrates is how do you travel from the National Business Parkway in Maryland, which is right near the NSA headquarters, which is where they coordinate their partnerships with the, with the companies, with AT&T and Verizon and others. How do you drive from there to New York secretly? And how do you do it? And so it's this, it has this kind of narrative um, drive to it. And then we decided, okay, we're going to do a physical, you know, we're going to shoot the drive and use the same instructions that, um, that the guidebook recommends to arrive at the building. So you uh, collaborated on the film and then Henrik and Ryan Gallagher uh, published a, an article for The Intercept uh, about this. How did you think differently about what the film was doing versus what the article was doing? I think we thought them as independent projects, but that are linked, that they're a joint reporting project, but that they're each independent and that they would not try to be a one-to-one mirroring of each other. And so I think for for me, um, I didn't work with them on, on the on the written piece, but I was interested in the kind of mystery and um, kind of spy vernacular that we were using and the visual quality of this building and sort of make that a sort of mysterious um, journey. And I, and the and the article, I think, really wanted to capture, like, what are the origins of this building? And Henrik did amazing research identifying the, the architect and looking at um, the his relationship to, to this building and other buildings. And I think for me, I was lucky to be able to sort of go out and do tests and shoot the building and, and also go down to the National Business Park and then come back to Laura and show her the, the footage. Uh, I'm nowhere near an, an experienced filmmaker. So just Laura's sort of very clear sense of this will work and this won't work was, was extremely helpful because I wasn't sure that initially the elements we had would be able to come together in the way they ended up doing. But I had a strong feeling that something could work out. And, and that's where Laura's extremely um, sure hand was was helpful. And and was part of one of the things that we want to really do at Field Division is find stories that can be told in different ways. So, you know, there are certain things you can do with writing that you can't yeah. do with as a as a film and there are certain things you can do with film that you can't do as as a writer and to how to combine the sort of best of both and and work on stories that are um, that are collaborations but are also um, use what are best about both mediums. There's a really great article, for example, about the National Business Parkway written by um, a colleague of ours, Ingrid Burrington, which describes this sort of very, very strange non-place that sort of uh, really happened after 9-11, where NSA started to work more with private contractors, and they had this whole new business of doing surveillance uh, on cables. Um, and and this is sort of the, the new NSA, and she's been down there reporting, and that's a great piece, but it just... It's such a visual place, and I felt that that in order to capture this, you can do this. You know, you, you, what people say about a thousand words, it's it's a lot easier to just film it. Um, and and I think the two, the story and the film, try to do what each medium does best. Um, so, what do we know about Thirty Three Thomas Street and what goes on there with the NSA, and what do we not know? Well, for starters, we are not 100% sure that 33 Thomas Street is indeed this building that the NSA calls Titan Point. We don't even know if that is a building. But what we've done is that we've shown all the different uh, documents and, and, and things we found that, that indicate that that is really what's going on. So, for example, one of the, the, the good strong matches we had was that the NSA documents indicate that 
there's uh, surveillance going on on phone lines going through what, what are called four years switches. This is a sort of old-fashioned uh, analog to digital uh, phone switch for for large quantities of, of of phone calls that are offloaded from regional and local networks to long distance uh, networks. Well, this building happens to be the long lines building. There's there's just some simple facts that sort of make it very likely that this is the case. Then we had some more clean matches. For example, there's a specific program going on inside this location that NSA calls Titan Point, which uh, operates through a satellite Earth link, a uh, satellite Earth station. And and so we looked at FCC licenses for the whole area uh, of New York and New York State, and, and it turned out that there was a one-to-one -one match with the, the two satellite dishes on the roof of this specific building. And, and so that also seems to indicate that if there is an NSA location that has a satellite uh, uplink, it's very likely that it's this building. And so there's, if you read the story, there's a bunch of these uh, in the story. But as, as often is the case, because this is so protected in the documents, they have this thing that they call ECIs, which are basically information management systems that make it in the situation that we're, we're in. We have a set of documents from Snowden. You're not directly able to correlate the information because it's protected. Uh, they have ways of, of making sure that above the top secret, secret level, there's also uh, code names and, and things that don't sort of spill from one area of, of the information to the other. And so, so that was what we tried to look for, things that sort of could jump over that barrier and show that this was indeed the building. In this clip from Project X, the actress Michelle Williams reads from an internal NSA newsletter. Fairview and Blarney engineers collaborated to enable the delivery of 700 megabits per second of data traffic from the United Nations mission in New York. The initial feedback has been positive. The Field Division website is run by Poitras with A.J. Schnock and Charlotte Cook. I asked Poitras what they're trying to accomplish. So what we're really interested in is how documentary filmmakers can be more responsive to the news to news cycles and be able to work more rapidly to to tell stories that are more in short form rather than the long form that we that we do which isn't to to say that we don't still believe in the importance of long form but that there is sort of a I think we feel like as filmmakers an urgency to sometimes want to engage more quickly and then also creatively like being you know long form films you spend years on and they sort of they take a while and to be able to work more quickly Quickly is just sort of exciting and um, and allows us to have an outlet. And then we also think that there's a strong need for it in the in the sort of news landscape that you have um, more you know migrating to sort of online news um, sites, but that there's not the resources or the expertise um, in many news organizations to really um, take advantage of what video can do. So we're trying to fund films and produce films that sort of kind of work that, um, thread that needle between those two, but sort of independent filmmaking and, and, um, and news gathering and what we're sort of calling visual journalism. And so we're interested in, um, different types of things, some fast responding or conflict zone funding filmmakers who are be able to like respond quickly. So we're working now on how we can respond to the sort of recent election of Trump in sort of very fast response. Um, we're interested in kind of more innovative types of storytelling. So Josh Begley's piece on the on the wall between the U.S. and Mexico is called Best of Luck with the Wall uh, is an example of using kind of an innovative kind of approach to storytelling. And we're interested in series and we're interested in these collaborations 
relations between filmmakers and writers. And so those are kind of the areas that we're interested in. And we're not bound by any particular outlet. So what we're trying to do is partner with many different um, uh, publishers, depending on what the story is. As an example of innovative partnerships, Field Division first announced Project X on the Twitter feed of the TV series Mr. Robot. The dramatic thriller, created by Sam Esmail, stars Rami Malek as a cybersecurity engineer who's recruited by a hacktivist leader known as Mr. Robot. There's actually a connection between our, our film, our documentary film, and, uh, and the Mr. Robot um, series and particularly the season finale so the if you look at if you're a mr robot fan and you um watch the final episode you'll notice that 33 thomas street plays an important uh-huh. role which was actually a total surprise to yeah. henrik and i we were we were in the process of editing project x and we're both mr robot fans and then we see like wait what there- i actually i saw it on wikipedia of all places that someone had uh, i i sort of watched the webpage for uh, 33 thomas street and i noticed someone had added a line about it being in Mr. Robot. And I already started, you know, I, you're nervous when you worked for more than six months on a story that someone's going to scoop you mm. or that somehow your, your your news angle is going to be taken away by someone else. And so I, I found the, the episode and realized that the, the whole episode is focused on this building and the plot. It's such a, a crazy plot. It actually has a lot of touching points with what we were working on. So then we saw it and realized that this was actually probably a good thing for us. And and then um, Laura reached out to the team and <laughs> we ended up um, maybe you want to tell this part of the story well I knew Sam who's the creator um, of Mr. Robot and I reached out and I said hey guess what I was like interesting I just watched your the, the season finale and we've been working on a, a documentary about the building as well and so I shared him the link and then I said you know maybe we could coordinate find a way to coordinate on the, on the release of the film and so he was excited about that because they've been doing really innovative um approach to how their um, the the show is reaching fans. And so we just thought that this is going to potentially open up a whole kind of new audience than we would typically get. Uh, Laura, I want to ask you, when, when you started reporting on Snowden, you were based in Berlin for a long time. There were a lot of open questions about what it would mean for you to come back to the United States. Um, you and Glenn Greenwald finally made this decision to, to come back in April 2014 to receive uh, the Polk Award. Can you talk about what that decision was like? You know, what was going through your mind when you came back to the U.S.? Sure. I mean, both Glenn and I had received legal advice that in the immediate aftermath of being in Hong Kong and publishing internationally about the story, that it wasn't a good time for either of us to come back because what we knew was a massive investigation into the into the leak. So we we stayed away, and um, and the story had huge international traction. I mean, the the kind of collected all mentality of the NSA, I think, made many people feel that that their privacy was being violated, and that it wasn't only U.S. privacy that mattered, you know, that, that, you know, people around the world, information was being collected. And so I think the, the fact that there was so much international um, outrage about what the NSA was doing provided us with, I think, a kind of more protection in the work that we were doing. And um, and then receiving the, the Polk Award and other awards, it provides another layer of protection. So we just thought that, that it was a good timing to Co- to coordinate coming back for, for the, f- to receive the award um, and come together on the same plane to make it 
really hard for the government if they were going to um, either try to question us or, or worse. So we, we just thought we would use them as much pressure as we could um, for that moment. And but I th- and I'm curious, for, I mean, for all the speculation of, you know, that the, that the government could make it hard on, uh, on you and Glenn Greenwald and other people who do this work, like, have you ever had any direct interaction with the government uh, around this story? Well, I mean, I've been on a on a government watch list since 2006, so I know that way predated my um, reporting on on the Snowden material, um, and the way that these watch lists works, you don't you don't really know when you're on or when you're off this list. So I imagine that I'm still they still pay attention to what I do and where I'm based. Um, but did they, they? I've never been approached by the government about the Snowden. Um, no one with an earpiece has ever asked you about no, Edward Snowden. No. But I, but I do know that uh, that there's been monitoring of, you know, physical monitoring, particularly in in Berlin um, after I came, after I traveled there after Hong Kong. So uh, now there is a, a movement to call for a pardon of Edward Snowden. There's an Edward uh, Pardon Snowden dot uh, org uh, has a prestigious list of supporters, including George Soros and Apple Steve Wozniak, and and you're a member on that uh, list. Can you summarize the case for pardoning Edward Snowden? Yeah, I mean, so um, the way that the Espionage Act works, which is what he's um, one of the he's charged under, you cannot present a defense of why you would take the actions he did. In other words, that the, the, the government can illegally spying on U.S. citizens, for instance. Um, and you can't make that defense. And so the, the Espionage Act is is, um, is sort of inherently doesn't allow for due process. And I think that that's one of the, the sort of strongest arguments. And I think that the sort of the public right to know and the public um, uh, service that the, the reporting has, I think, provided is, you know, a very strong argument. I mean, the reporting we've done is, you know, received a Pulitzer for public service. Um, so I think all those reasons um, that, that, you know, people have pushed for, for his, his pardon. I want to thank Laura Poitras and Henrik Moltke for talking to me. You can watch their short film, Project X, on the website fieldofvision.org. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, social media master Jordan Smith, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.